This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Rabbi Danya Rutenberg. Rabbi Rutenberg is the author of seven books, including Surprised by God, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Religion, and is written for the New York Times, Atlantic, Salon, Time, Newsweek, The Washington Post, The Forward, and many other publications. She is currently a scholar in residence at the National Council of Jewish Women. Danya, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you for having me. So I'm excited to discuss your chosen passage, which is about the golden calf. So tell us about what happens at the golden calf, which I think most people are passingly familiar with, but what happens and why is it significant to you? So, you know, to talk about what happens, I think we need a little bit of a meta context for where we are in the story. So Israelites in Egypt wasn't good. They left, right? Very dramatic leaving, right? There were plagues and there was killing of firstborns and it was dramatic and then they took off and then there's this moment when they think they're going to get captured by the Egyptian army again and then the sea splits and they run to the other side and they see the Egyptian army fall. I mean, all of this is is happening. So seven weeks later, they have this very intense experience of the receiving of Torah at Sinai and you see the description and there's thunder and there's lightning and the mountain is trembling and there's smoke and there's a shofar and it's a lot. And Israel is so uncomfortable by this, you know, frightened really, that they say, you know what, Moses, why don't you go get some the rest of the Torah? We'll hang out here. This is a lot. So then Moses goes up on the mountain and he's up there and he's receiving Torah. He got her having a little one-on-one and the people Israel are waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And he's been there a while. And that's when we get to this golden calf moment. So now we're at Exodus 32 and uh, Moses is delayed descending the mountain. The people gather around Aaron and what happens? So the people gathered against Aaron and said, let us make a God who will go before us because that man, Moses, brought us out the guy who took us out of Egypt. We don't know what happened to him. He'd been gone. We don't know. And so Aaron does not exactly say, hold on, you guys, let's have a talk about this. He says immediately, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives and your sons and the daughters and bring them to me. So they take off their gold, they bring their jewelry, and they have a mold. There's a very interesting interpretation of that, whereas, so Aaron does not stop them. He does not say, Moses will be back. Even if he's not back, we're not idolaters. We don't make golden calves and worship them. This whole enterprise is not only ridiculous, it's immoral. He doesn't say that. He's criticized for that. But in his defense, it's often given where he says the passage that you just read, where he says, remove the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me, presuming that they would never do so. And so his presumption is, I'm going to solve this problem by telling them to tell their wives, their sons, and their daughters to give me all their gold, all their valuables, They're never going to do it. So the whole golden calf enterprise will die before it ever starts. And of course, they do it anyway. Well, except for the part where they then make the calf and say, you know, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. And then what does he do? Aaron builds an altar for the calf. So he's totally seems to be in on on this whole situation. Right. 
So by 32-5, whether or not his uh, 32-2 was an attempt to stop this whole enterprise before it got started by having the people think twice before they gave their rings of gold, they removed the gold rings that were in their ears. It says the entire people removed the gold rings that were in their ears. There wasn't a lot of dissension. If that was his plan, it failed spectacularly. And as you said, they fashioned a molten calf, and then Aaron builds an altar around it. And then he declares a festival for Hashem. What happens with God and Moses? who are observing this from on high in the mountain. God is not impressed. God is a little over it and says, you know what? Maybe let's start over. <laughs> you and me, let's let's go to try this again. And Moses, and this is one of these great moments that gets cited is how we understand what a prophet is, intercedes with God on behalf of the people and says, God, that would look really bad if you did all the work of taking these people out of Egypt and then decided to smite them in the desert, right? That's going to really destroy your credibility. So let's try to work with the situation as we have it. Yeah, this is one of Moses' great moments, perhaps his greatest moment, when he argues with God. God says, let's start again with you. Moses says, one of the great lines in the Torah, if you do that, blot me out of your Torah. Knowing that Moses is probably the one character without whom the Torah cannot exist. So God can't blot him out of his Torah. Moses has cornered God, and God seems to love it because he doesn't argue back. Right. I mean, one of the things I love about the character of God in Torah is that we see this is a, a picture of God that is constantly learning and growing and changing and developing input and stuff like that. I totally agree with your assessment that the God of the Torah is a learning, changing God. And part of the reason why God is perfect is because he learns. Yes. So I, I will note, I believe the pronoun for God is God, because God's not a dude. But yes, uh, the idea, uh, I mean, the Torah doesn't tell a picture of a God that is static and stiff and stiff and has all the answers, right? It's an ever-evolving process, and we can decide that that means into our day, right? Into now. Right. So God tells Moses, get rid of the people, we'll start over. Moses says, no way. He makes this brilliant argument with God where he says, he says, why Hashem should your anger flare up against your people when you have taken them out of the land of Egypt? And not why, as in the scientific why is why did it happen, but to what end? In other words, what would be the purpose of taking the people out of Egypt just to kill them in the desert a few months later? And secondly, the point of this whole enterprise is to establish the reign of ethical monotheism in the world. And what should the Egyptians say when they say, so God took them out of the desert and within a month, they're all dead. Some God that is not a very inspiring one. So Moses wins the argument and God loves it. Moses won the argument because as you said, God is a learning and changing God. Yep. I hadn't thought about this before. So, so I have this whole thesis. I can tell you like why I brought this passage. Yeah, please. Absolutely. As I think about it, this actually sort of supports my claim. I think the golden calf story is a story about the failure of adaptive leadership. How's that? So talk about... Technical solutions and adaptive solutions. This is this whole sort of leadership way of thinking, right? That when there are moments when people are facing loss, you can do things, right? This We are in a pandemic. I know we'll do the exact same things we were doing with our schools or with our synagogues, but we'll just do them online, right? That's a technical solution. But it doesn't help people speak to the loss they're feeling, Major change always involves loss. And adaptive leadership is about helping people to bridge that gap, to help them meet the new moment on the terms of the new moment, and not to try to force the new moment to be like how it was, just we'll make a little tweak so that we can be here, right? And we have this people 
we're traumatized, right? This is why I wanted to start us in the golden calf story really starts with however many generations of enslavement, right? And the epigenetics of that and the traumatic experience of leaving Egypt and the, I think, traumatic experience of crossing the Red Sea and the somewhat traumatic experience of receiving the Torah. Go figure that the Israelites are like, you know what? We would like something familiar in Egypt. They had idols and that's how they did gods. We can't handle this. This is a lot of new. We are in the desert. This is uncertain. We do not like it. Let's just make it like it how, how it was and that'll fix it. And the Torah's response is like, that's the wrong answer, right? This is a new moment and you're going to need new tools and new approaches and new ways of thinking. Was it absolutely the best call for Moses to vanish on these this traumatized people? You know, right? As all of this was happening, like maybe that wasn't a good pastoral choice. But any which way, we can see that Aaron had was supposed to be. Aaron was in charge, right? He was supposed to be on making the decision about how we handle this moment. And things got hard. The substitute teacher got kids who had way bigger needs than he expected, and he didn't meet the moment. That's right. He didn't meet the moment. Why do you think he doesn't meet the moment? Why do you think he? Now, it's, it's perhaps in 32.2, as we discussed, perhaps he thought that he was clever and could fell this thing before it started. It doesn't work. But as you pointed out, within three lines, he's building an altar. It fails. Moses comes down, sees Aaron's complicity in this, is not happy with him, obviously. Aaron says, let not my master's anger flare up. Aaron defends the people. Why do you think Aaron, who was certainly had a relationship with God, perhaps not like Moses, but nobody did, but Aaron had a relationship with God. Why would Aaron have exceeded in this great sin of the golden calf? I think it's because he was as traumatized as everybody else, right? Moses had this great luxury and privilege of growing up not as an enslaved person, right? He had the epigenetic stuff, and I'm sure he had his, you know, you can go into all of the psychological stuff of when did he know that he was a Jew and, you know, or Israelite, and how did that impact his psychology? And we can do all of that, but he grew up in the palace, and then he left the palace and went to Midian, right? He was away. He was elsewhere. Aaron grew up in the middle of all of this. He was enslaved, right? He saw all of the kids who were just a little bit younger than him getting murdered. His experience of all of this was, you know, like he, he's of the same. The Israelites and Aaron are not different in that way. But Aaron was not enslaved, right? Aaron was a Levite and the Levites were not enslaved. But but he he grew up in the conditions of slavery, right? You know, Pharaoh trying to kill his brother when he was younger, like he was oppressed. You know, maybe he was a slight, had a slight position as an oppressed person, but I don't think that means he had, had a lot less trauma. Right. But an another question is, we learn later that all the people mourn Aaron when he died. They didn't all mourn Moses, but they all mourn Aaron. Could Aaron have been the kind of leader who led by getting everyone to like him? It was never in his constitution, and this is to his detriment, but it was never in his constitution to be a tough leader, to tell the people this is completely unacceptable. And if you persist, you're going to get punished or whatever. But he was always trying to make everybody happy, he tried to make Moses happy with no golden calf. He tries to make the people happy with the golden calf, he tries to be too clever by half by not having a golden calf. The whole thing blows up on everybody. <laughs> I like that read. I've never thought about it that way. But Oh, thank you. The, I mean, there, there are the leaders who... who um prefer to be liked than to lead the people in ways that they be led. And that's, you know, now as then. Because Aaron was always thought, and he is thought to be the, the prince of peace. On the one hand, there's a lot to recommend that. On the other hand, part of what it 
suggested by Aaron was that he was unable to have the tough conversations and to deliver the tough lessons that people didn't want to hear because perhaps he wanted everyone to like him. And in the end, they did like him. They all mourned when he died, but it didn't make him a great leader at a tough moment. Right. I mean, you know, that's what people want and what people need from their leaders are not always the same thing. And in that moment, people were definitely expressing a really powerful need, right? They were alone. They were scared in the desert. They felt abandoned. They didn't feel like they had any anchor. The desert's a scary place. And so they want, they were yearning for something that was familiar and that felt safe. And that is a totally understandable need to express and saying, you know, okay, right? You don't tell children like, okay, you're feeling angry, so it's fine to hit your sister. Like we don't, you know what I mean? Exactly. Your your need is legitimate and let's find a healthy way to help you express it. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. So Aaron, he could have, he should have understood the trauma that the people were suffering under in a way that perhaps Moses never did because Moses had many virtues, but sensitivity was not one of them. No, but he was not as traumatized. And so Aaron's buttons have been pushed as much as everybody else's. But what's interesting is that just you know, remember that I was supposed to come back to this, this exchange between Moses and God is actually, as we're talking about adaptive change, God here has this model, right? We've seen in the Torah, people aren't good. So we're going to throw a flood, start over, reset button. And so God's like, well, I don't, you know, people aren't good, hit reset button. And Moses is like, no, we need to find, we need to find a new way of coping to meet this moment that's going to be more productive. And God is willing to change what God would have done and to find a new way of addressing it. And so that's, you know, it's a moment of growth for the character of God, but it's also potentially, you know, an adaptive leadership moment of learning to cope with loss. Right. How to cope with loss and, and how to lead through difficult times. Well, thank you for such a fascinating discussion about the golden calf passage, which is uh, passingly familiar to so many, but you brought out such depth. Now, the concluding question of the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, the sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And this is actually on the very first page of the book. He tells the story. He said, I just ran into this man who uh, served with me in the war and saved a lot of Jews and then became a parish priest. So I said to the, the man, now a priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there's no such thing as a grown-up person. <laughs> so in all of your years as a rabbi, as an award-winning Jewish author on so many different subjects, and as a leader in the Jewish communal space in so many different ways, what are two things that you learned about humankind? That on some deep level, everyone needs to be told you're not bad, you're doing okay. Which doesn't mean there aren't things you, you know, messes you need to clean up, ways you need to work and grow. But if you say you're a terrible person, you can't work and grow, right? If you say you're a good person, you did a harmful thing. Here, let me invite you. To, you know, it, it's a totally different conversation. People need to hear that you're not bad. That's so interesting because when Joseph reconciles with his brothers, they're kind of stunned when they see it's him and they think that, oh, now here comes the punishment that we've been expecting and that we deserve. And yet he says, I am Joseph, your brother. That's how he introduces himself. There was no other Joseph. Obviously, he was their brother. But by saying, I'm Joseph, your brother, he was doing what you were saying. He was saying, like, we have a bond between us that will enable us to get through what we have to get through. Listen, I'm writing a book about Chuva repentance right now. So I'm kind of thinking about it. I mean, you know, like that's a classic story for that, right? 
we could have a whole conversation about that. But, you know, these things are deeply interconnected, right? People can learn and grow and change, and they need to be told in some deep way, you're okay. You're okay. You're not bad. I mean, I guess they're, those are connected, right? I do believe that. I believe so passionately about chuba, about the work of repentance, the capacity of people to transform, to see other people in deeper, more meaningful ways, to understand the ways in which we're interconnected and to grow and change accordingly. And I, you know, I can name all the reasons why it's so hard, but... Yeah, I was actually just going to ask you, why is it so hard? I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons. We have this, The I can go do a whole song and dance about the American cultural narrative that really wants to tell a story about how, you know, you are good or you are bad. I'm not racist. I don't have a racist bone in my body. It's like, no, 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 you said a racist thing that doesn't impugn you in your deepest soul. It doesn't mean you're not incapable of growing, but you need to know why that thing you know, reinforces white supremacy and is not good. Clean up your mess. And if you clean up your mess, then you won't do it again. And then you're even less racist. And that's great. We have this whole story about if you do something bad, it's because you are bad. And there's a lot of vulnerability that is required and a lot of humility that is required in doing this work. And people don't like it. It's not comfortable. It's not an easy feeling. But I'd argue, you know, in my experience, Doing the hard work actually then makes you free in ways that a better feeling than you ever could have had otherwise. Now, at the Golden Calf, Moses doesn't suggest Chuba on the behalf of the people, does he? Uh, I don't think so. It's just like, don't kill them, right? Remember them, right? It'll look bad. Remember how you promised. I think this is where you need a pastoral lens. I don't think you can read the Golden Calf without talking about trauma. If somebody is in clearly great pain and they act out because that is what they know how to do, then they don't have any better tools saying you're bad, fix it. It's like with what? <laughs> but if you take a pastoral look and say like, guys, I know this is really hard and it's really scary and we have to find a better way, right? You know, how do you talk to your kids when they're at that moment where their coping skills are not enough to meet the moment, right? You know, like, let's let's together figure out what we can do that's going to help us go differently. I think that's what the moment requires. Very interesting. One interpretation, by no means the right interpretation, of course, there are 70 interpretations of everything, but one interpretation of the great question of why does Jacob react so inadequately at the rape of Dina? Why does he not even say or do anything in defense of his daughter when his sons, of course, do? Lots of people have tried to figure it out. Everyone's read the story has tried to figure it out. And one of the in interesting modern interpretations is that he's suffering from secondary trauma. And therefore, he's it's to him literally unspeakable. And he's literally speechless because I think what in your, your language, he doesn't have any tools at that point to respond. This is not to his credit, it's to his discredit, but he, he has nothing to respond with. You know, it's not somebody's fault if they don't have tools. Is it the optimal thing that uh, was needed in that moment? Maybe not, but... Well, as, as a parent, you always need tools to help your kids. But the whole book of Genesis is basically a book of intergenerational trauma. So, Well, Danya, thank you for such an interesting uh, conversation, instructive conversation, um, all stemming from the great passage of the Golden Calf. Thank you for letting me come play. This was really fun. Absolutely. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter. 
which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatsala and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.